taught me this one thing that I have like carried with me for the rest of my career, which is, you know, you have to be the same person on the inside that you are on the outside, right? Like, because otherwise, like you're trying to maintain too many different, doesn't mean you have to be the exact same in every situation, but like you can't pretend to be somebody you're not. Uh, You can't like, because it just gets too complicated to keep track of who you're trying to be. And this is Scaling Clean the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. All right. Hello, Clean Techers, and welcome back to another episode of Scaling Clean. As listeners know, our show is tightly focused on interviewing CEOs to glean usable best practices and tips on how to build, run, and lead companies. My guest today is Scott Kubley. You might say that Scott, quote, knows how to get around. But what I really mean is that he's built a career on expertise of how humans can more efficiently move around urban areas. He's been an advisor to three Seattle area companies a policy lead for the e-mobility leader Lime, as well as an official in four municipal transportation departments. But he's also the CEO of an innovative camper van sharing company, Cabana. On a recent episode of This Week in Clean Tech, I nominated Scott for Clean Tech of the Week because he displayed a lot of courage in authoring an open kimono post on LinkedIn about Cabana ending. So here's the thing about clean tech. It's hard. We're disrupting powerful, mature incumbent sectors And it's not like the disrupted are sitting still waiting for us to put them out of business. So add to that the normal problems of launching new industrial sectors and companies. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is going to have failures. We're going to lose jobs, we're going to lose accounts, and we'll lose companies. And I've learned myself that there's a lot more available to learn and to improve on from the failures than there are the wins. And Scott's continuing to display that courage and openness by agreeing to be our next guest on Scaling Clean. He's the first to talk with us about the lessons learned from a recent loss, and I'm grateful he's come on to pay forward those lessons learned. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Mike. Uh, Great to be here. I'll start with a few of our standard questions so listeners can get to know you. How would you summarize your background and career? It's interesting. You know, I have, I think, a reasonably atypical path to entrepreneurship, uh, as you mentioned, I spent about two-thirds of my career in the public sector and then the last third at Lime and then Cabana. And so, you know, I, I think that's reasonably unusual. But I think, you know, when I look back at kind of what the through line is from my whole career, I've always been entrepreneurial. Like I remember as a kid, uh, when I was growing up, my mom took us to, you know, Sam's Club at the time and we bought like a bunch of cola like a bunch of like President's Choice Cola or whatever the store brand cola was. And we were living in an apartment complex and I sat by the soda machine and arbitraged cola, right? So the soda machine was like 50 cents and I was selling it for 45, right? Nice. Banking on kids, like wanting to save a nickel. And so, and I had like a deck painting business when I was a kid. And then I went into the government and the reason I did was I wanted to, I really wanted more city. Right. Like I grew up in the suburbs, but I wanted to grow up in the city. I wanted to live in the city and I wanted to help make more of them. And so I wound up getting into transportation. And, you know, early on, I was working in a a giant bureaucratic machine, the Washington Metro. And it was I would hear over, you know, I'd come in with these like neat ideas because I was like young and fresh faced. And I would hear, oh, well, you know, we tried that. We tried that a while ago and it didn't work. And that was like the de facto way to shut down a conversation. So that was like the first four years of my career. And I, you know, I, I felt very much like a fish out of water, but I didn't realize I was a fish out of water. And then I went to work for Mayor Fenty in D.C. and then kind of got hooked on working for mayors. Um, and I think, you know, the through line and I think the, the, the thing that the pattern is that if you think about what a mayor's office is, it's really is like a startup. Hmm. So you get it, you get a mayor, he's uh, somebody running for office, right? 
And they, they have a bunch of young people that are working on the campaign. They have like more energy than expertise and they get elected. And that is like your first funding round. Right. <laughs> and then you have, I love that. <laughs> then you have four years of runway, right. In which you have to demonstrate product market fit to the voters so that they'll put you in office again. And then what you do is you have a bunch of young people or mostly young people that wind up working in your mayor's office. You give them way more authority than they've ever had anywhere else or they could get anywhere else, right? Because they're bought into the product. And then they bump up against the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy is telling them what you're trying to do is crazy. There's no way that you can do that. We tried that before. It didn't work. And you're just like, you're expected to make change. And that is like the pattern for working in a mayor's office. And so after that, I went to work for Rahm Emanuel in Chicago, and then I went to work for the mayor out here in Seattle, Ed Murray. And then when I was leaving the mayor's office, I kind of, and I think this is where, you know, we met in a prior life. Uh, I knew that I had kind of like reached my terminal job in the public sector. I'd pretty much given everything that I I had. Uh, or maybe it was not the terminal job, but it was my terminal job. How about that? And uh I wanted to move into a, the startup world. Uh, I knew that what I didn't, what I wasn't going to be good at was doing like business development, government relations, or maybe I didn't want to. And like what you want to do and what you're good at are sometimes misaligned or are, are frequently <laughs> the same things. Like you want to do stuff you're good at. Yeah. So I, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to like, so I wound up going to Lyme because it was like a subject area that I understood and I cared about. Uh, it was an opportunity to like get in at a super early stage startup and, you know, kind of learn how they all worked. And I was there for probably a year, a little over a year. I think my first day on the job or second day on the job, we launched our first scooter market. And then, you know, uh, within the year we were at 70,000 scooters globally, uh, spent every time our, founder went out to grab a cigarette i would like scurry after him and spend five ten minutes however long <laughs> it took to to smoke a cigarette asking him like okay how do you raise money why why did we do this why did our competitor do this and like kind of learning from him kind of all the strategy around like fundraising and scaling and then when i left i went to start cabana which you know for listeners and this is like five minutes into what should, should have been a short, short summary but we were basically kind of trying to build a mobile hospitality experience take everything that you find in a hotel room put it in the back of a camper van kind of inspired by van life but uh much more hospitality focused the idea being sure you can put your your cabana on the edge of a cliff in southern utah but you can also like pop up a 500 room hotel at Coachella, or you could, you know, pop up, you know, a, a destination wedding where there's not actually lodging. Right. And so it's really kind of, you know, building a hospitality product that allowed you, you know, to pull not just the price lever, right. But also the location lever. Nice. Okay. Let's talk about mentors. Who were your one, two or three most important mentors and what did you learn from them? Yeah. So, uh, I think the first one that I would really, uh, point to early in my, I'm going to go kind of sequentially in my career, uh, was a guy named Dan Tangerlini. And so Dan, uh, was when I was first starting my career, he was the director of the district department of transportation. And then he came to the Washington Metro when I was there as the CEO or interim CEO. And then he went to work for Mayor Fenty. Now, like fast forward, he's like, was sitting in like cabinet meetings with Obama, you know, because he was head of the G, uh, GSA, like post, there was like a big scandal in Vegas and he got tapped to take over the department after that. And then now he's at uh, the Emerson Collective, uh, but just like an incredibly smart guy. And, uh, you know, just he had he had in a lot of ways, like the career, like early on the career that I wanted. And so he like kind of few things that I kind of learned from him was one, you know, and I think as now later in life, it makes way more sense. But he he was like he would have these little like aphorisms and sayings and you would have to like try to discern this meaning. Right. Where it was like almost like a 
IQ <laughs> test to figure out if he, what he was saying was like, if you were picking up what he was putting down, but uh, he had like this. So I was a budget analyst for him and he had this sign over the, uh, the door to like our big budget room where we would have kind of the, the, the grillings of the departments. And he said, it said, you believe in the infinite availability of finite resources, uh, which is like kind of like the ethos and of what we were trying to impart, you know, in the Fenty administration. The other one was, uh, is if you want to innovate, remove a zero. And basically like scarcity okay. leads to innovation, right? I like that. Uh, and then the other one, which I, I think has been even more relevant, you know, and, and probably will come up a little bit later, kind of around people, which is it's way easier to prune than fertilize. It's way more fun, right? You like, I'd much rather call and tell you to slow down than to call and tell you to start, right? Nice. It's like, it's really like that kind of like that kind of mindset that I learned from Dan. And then the other one is a guy named, you. your, your listeners may know him, a guy named Gabe Klein, who is leading... Uh, Biden's energy office is like this joint DOT, DOE thing, We're focusing on uh, electrification of the, the vehicle network, sort of deploying chargers. And I think from Gabe, like he was the first person that I worked for that was like really entrepreneurial. Mm. And like he kind of lit a fire under me or unlocked something that I, that was like kind of long dormant. And you know, he was, he was kind of fearless and he would just, you know, he was the, uh, he put me in charge of like the capital bike share program in DC and then Divi in Chicago. And, you know, he was constantly like challenging the status quo and putting out big ideas. And I think, you know, the other thing I learned from him was, well, and, and just like, I think the the fact that you have to have a big idea to like, and you have to say it out loud to kind of like get it to happen, to manifest it. The other thing that I kind of learned from him, he grew up uh, on Yo- in Yogaville, which is like a yoga retreat. And so I learned some- I have done a silent retreat at Yogaville. Okay. So yeah. So he grew up there and wow. he taught me this one thing that I have like carried with me for the rest of my career, which is- you know, you have to be the same person on the inside that you are on the outside. Amen. Right. Like, cause otherwise like you're trying to maintain too many different, doesn't mean you have to be the exact same in every situation, but like, you can't pretend to be somebody you're not. Uh, you can't like, cause it just gets too complicated to keep track of who you're trying to be. Love that. Absolutely. Love that. Scott, this is going to be awesome. Scott, you wrote so courageously about the end of Cabana few do this and more should, I think. And I haven't seen this level of confident openness since David Crane wrote about getting fired from NRG. And I I met David for the first time last year and I told him how much that had inspired me to be bold. So you did as well. I just wanted to say that. Thank you. I wanted to know, like, what motivated you to do that? It's a really interesting, you know, I, I did not, when I was doing it, I was not thinking it was a courageous thing to do. Uh, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm still not 100% sure it was. Uh, we're going to go with my interpretation. Yeah, we'll go with yours. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it's a, it's a couple things. One is like, I don't view it as a failure. Uh, one, like, I, like not every, like we're a venture back startup, not every venture back startup succeeds. Right. And, you know, so when I look at it, it was, I think the best professional experience I've ever had, even with the outcome that we had, it was, you know, I learned more about myself and more about other people and like more about kind of building something than I would have ever, than I'd ever learned you know, professionally in the past. Um, so that, I mean, that's just like the experience that I had. What Then like, why? I mean, so there's like the pragmatic side and then kind of like the leadership side. So the pragmatic side is I've got to find a job. And so I've got to figure out like how to like tell the story of what happened with Cabana and explain why I'm walking away from it to, you know, prospective employers or 
prospective investors. You know, maybe I'd love to start another company again. I'm like, I left everything that I had on the field. So I probably need to go kind of work somewhere again and like kind of recharge that, that particular type of battery. But so part of it is just like really pragmatic of like, I gotta, I gotta like update my LinkedIn post to like make it so that I surface. And then because I'm doing that, I'm going to need to like explain kind of how it happened. And, and the reality is, is, you know, the jobs that I had in the past, I was a reasonably public person, public figure in the, in the Pacific Northwest in the Seattle area. And so, you know, there's a good chance it'd make, you know, get tweeted out or get picked up by, you know, one of the kind of local tech publications. So I wanted to, you know, kind of like have a little bit of, you know, control over that narrative about how it gets reported. One. Then two, you know, I think it's also about for the people that were a member of the team, right? Helping them have a story that they can tell to future employers mm, gotcha. as well. Right. So like, oh, you're, you know, you're at this company. What happened? Right. Cause like right now, like when you wind down a company, uh, which is like, holy cow, like that is a totally like, that is the underbelly of American industry that is like, was totally <laughs> new to me and really fascinating. And like, if you are ever looking to buy a company, like develop relationships with the companies that or the firms that do these, because there are serious deals to be had Wow! Just as All a right. sidebar, as a okay. sidebar. Right. Uh, but, uh, you know, so, like, if you go to Cabana.life right now, it's like a 404, right? Because, like, bills aren't getting paid. Google shuts down the website. So, I wanted folks to have something that they could point to to kind of explain the story, right? And then the other thing is, and there was a, a younger guy that was working for me, kind of like the last employee that we kept on. He was, like, 24, 25. And, you know, I, I don't know if he realizes right now, like, how much cachet that should carry with future employers. Like I was the last person that <laughs> this company chose to, to, to let go. Right. Because like, that's how versatile I am and that's what kind of, you know, but like hopefully down the road, he'll, he'll realize that if he doesn't yet, but he was talking to me and he was really, I could tell that he was like pretty depressed one day. And, you know, cause like when you're going through a startup, there's like, there's, there's not like right, like, like there's no like right answer in life, right? There's like good answers and bad answers, but there's no like right answer. And I think that, you know, when you're doing a, you know, a company like we were trying to do, you know, you have execution errors, right? Like there's mistake, like there's things that given the benefit of hindsight, you would have done differently, given more time to weigh the options you would have done differently. And so I think he was letting a few of these things where he felt like he had messed something up, kind of like eat him up right Mm. and i had this conversation with them and it was like look like certainly like there are like there are undoubtedly like many execution errors we made along the way but none of those i think were like company killing execution mistakes right like sometimes like the 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 forces are bigger than your tiny little company. Mm, gotcha. And you know, like now, if all those conditions had been right, would we have made it? I don't know. We had some execution errors that given the benefit of hindsight, I would definitely make different, but I wanted to give him and like people like him kind of the the ability to let it go, right? Cuz like you have these people they poured like their heart and soul into building something. And then it ceases to exist. I love that. Give, give them yeah. a way. Give them a way to let it go. I, boy, yeah. do I love that one. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, I, I, just to know, you could have done what people do when they get fired. I'm looking for my next opportunity. I mean, everybody on LinkedIn goes, "Yeah, you guys can't." <laughs> No one actually believes that. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's the biggest piece of bovine excrement yeah. that gets handed out. On LinkedIn. You're like, yeah. no, you got canned and it's okay. Yeah. You know, like it every, happens you, to the best of us. All right. All right. So we're trying to pay forward lessons learned yeah. to other people in your shoes because 
man, I, I mean, I can tell you from my little, uh, from our, from my, being a niche service provider, heavy wears the crown. Like it's kind of yeah. lonely doing this thing. So I, I really, I found uh, there's a growing community of people who run clean tech companies. And I don't think anybody feels like they've got it all wired down. So my question to you is if you could boil down this experience you just came through starting then losing Cabana, three biggest lessons you want to pay for to people like you, like me. Yeah. I mean, these are, so like when I, when I thought about like how to answer this question, right? Like I, it's very easy. Like I'm going to go, there's going to be somewhat tactical, but there's like a through line where I think there's like a, like a single theme. So I think the first one was when we were building out our software, uh, we were, we did it, I think a really smart way early on. We white labeled, right? So we've got a white label software so we didn't have to build our own so that we could like figure out is there product market fit for this like contactless check-in and check-out. So, you know, with Cabana, you could like, you didn't have to do a walkthrough, right? You just like walk up, unlock, you're on your way, all the how-to videos built into the app. So we wanted to test whether there was product market fit for that. And there was. And then the other thing that we did that was a white label was we used, uh, you know, uh, one of the marketplaces, one of the RV rental marketplaces has like a white label fleet management software. And so our fleet started growing. And so we started using that. And what we did, so then as we were started building our own tech, we got really, really focused on integrating with that marketplace's, you know, fleet management app and their kind of booking system. And we did that because we thought it was really important that we be able to surface on that marketplace. And, you know, the reality is, is in our mature markets, you know, where we had built brand and our vans were driving around and people could see them, like maybe five to 10% of our traffic was coming in through that platform, which felt like a lot. So we didn't want to turn off, right? But it wasn't built to be integrated with other software packages. So there wasn't like an API that was like really well documented and easy to integrate with our system. So we spent like in, in like just uh, way too many engineering hours trying to integrate with this thing that was like five to 10% of our, our demand. And in hindsight, just a huge opportunity cost that slowed down, you know, the next thing that we didn't do quick enough, which is, you know, we knew from our very first board meeting from like, frankly, like before I'd even incorporated like my very first pitch deck, right? Like crude, like what are my thoughts? Like putting them on like the back of a napkin kind of level of pitch deck. I knew that we needed to be asset light because, and what I mean by that is we couldn't have the vans and the sitting on our balance sheet and we couldn't use equity to buy fans, right? Because it would be way too dilutive. And so we had solved that in a few different ways, but like long-term we knew that we needed to get like a host kind of local owner operators to own these vehicles because otherwise like every time that you, you know, even if you're doing fleet financing, you need to raise a certain amount of equity to get the, the certain amount of leverage. And so we knew we needed to get to this like franchise-like uh, model or this host model that we're doing. Uh, and we made the pivot to that in February of 2023. It was like way too late. Like I knew in twenty mid-2019 when I was writing the pitch deck that that was the way we needed to grow. I knew in 2021, spring of 2021, when we raised our Series A, like it was hard. And the reason it was hard was because we hadn't rolled out this model yet. Mm. And I was like, I wanted to dog food our product too much. And we had like integrated with this. We spent too much time trying to integrate with this software uh, or this uh, this kind of like back office and, and booking engine from a third-party marketplace. And so we spent all of our time trying to make that easier for our operators. And we weren't comfortable bringing in those like hosts until we had it like a, in a little better shape. Like we spent like 
we just like lost a ton of time on that. And like, we, like we knew literally before we started the company that that is the direction we needed to go. And so I got too precious in terms of that, like five to 10% of demand, we would have been way better taking that same amount of time and doing an integration with a GDS so that we showed mm. up on like kayak or Expedia. Right. Or, you know, so, so it's just like an opportunity cost uh, there. Sorry, I'm going a little long. And then the, no, no problem. Let, let me, so paraphrase that take, take, if you can, best you can, yeah. take it out of the cabana specifics and try to, if you can genericize yeah. that lesson, because I think there's something very important there. No, I, I, so what I would say is like the, the scarcest thing that we had was time, right? Time to like build our product, prove it out and like demonstrate the product market fit. That was, so time was our most valuable asset. And we spent too much of our software engineering resources focused on things that were not like moving the needle on the demand side enough. And they were preventing us from hitting the the the, the strategic goal of the company, mm. right? Because we we're so busy trying to like polish this one side of our software stack, and and it was just all about kind of opportunity costs. Like we should, we could have got it. We could have done way more in a way more important part of the business if we had just been willing to like say, okay. We learned what we needed to learn from this part of our journey. And now it's time to cut that off and move forward completely new. So what I hear you saying, it was, if you had to do over again, you would have been much more ruthless at prioritizing the critical thing as opposed to the thing you're in love with. Uh, Not even that. I think it is more, I would have euthanized it, right? I would be willing, not just to like stop prioritizing it just cut it off and stop working on it and make a, make a change. Right. Because like, it's the thing, like we needed to do it to learn. We'd learned everything we needed to learn. And by holding on to it, it was like a barnacle on a ship. Like all it did was slow us down. And then I think the third one, and again, I think it is the the similar through line. My co-founder quit like four or five months in and it was my technical co-founder. And which was made it really challenging, but I never found the right leader to take over that role. And I tried like a bunch of different flavors of ice cream and never found the right one. And so I spent, and it's also the, the fun part of the business. Right. And so I wound up spending way too much time, like trying to figure out how to be the technical co-founder or be the technical leader instead of like figuring out, like putting all of my time and attention on finding that person. And then essentially like in a, like in a big way, kind of ceding control to somebody that wasn't there at the founding. Yeah. Uh, Which I think is hard. Right. And so I think, you know, again, that gets back to like on all of those things, like the software, the pivot to the platform, the you know the hardware not finding the right person it all boiled down to like the opportunity cost of mm, like gotcha what we could have been doing and then the other just thing is like like i can boil down like every strategic or tactical mistake that we had to not having the right person in the room at the right time to help make that decision not that like we didn't have wonderful people but there was like a few areas where it's like oh if we just you know we're just missing it was just like wrong seat right bus or wrong seat wrong bus good person but it was just like it all boils down to just boiled down to just not having the right kind of like expertise in the room okay if we split screened yep footage of scott kubley when he first managed other people and we split screened how you were managing people during this experience, what are the differences that we would see? Yeah. So hair, a lot more hair. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> that hair that did exist would be less gray. Uh, no, I would say mostly I think what you would see is internal, right? Like internal to me. So it'd be like an internal split screen. Uh, I think early on, I think like, I think more like this is going to sound kind of paradoxical, 
but I think more confident in my own abilities, but like much more humble about how limited they are, if that makes sense. Yep. So I think like if you're familiar with like imposter syndrome, right? There are people that like are confident in your, their abilities, but they're not really confident in their abilities. And so it's, I don't know, it's hard to explain, but I, I feel like I know the stuff that I'm good at now, and I don't feel insecure about being good at those things. But I'm also more aware of what I'm not good at. And I don't beat myself up for that because it's just like who I am. So that would be one. I think, um, you know, how did, of, if I can, how did yeah. that greater awareness manifest in your interactions with people you were managing at Cabana? Uh, I think like probably I would say I am more I enjoy people that challenge me more now. Got it. Okay. Uh, you know, that are, are willing to like call me out and even, you know, and if it's in a group meeting, like all the better, like not, I mean, obviously respectfully. Right. But you know, you want, you want people to challenge you and it's like, doesn't feel as threatening anymore. Um, I think I'm more interested in watching other people grow. Mm. So like, I think this happens as you get older, right? Yeah, so I'm like yeah. just about to turn 50. And I think there was a point at which, like, I think you're like in your, your twenties and thirties and you're like getting by on potential. Like people will talk oh, like this guy's got a lot of potential. And then you hit a certain age where they're like, well, you kind of are who you are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, well, more, <laughs> no, no more potential for you, bucko. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to a degree, right? Like that is like, that is reality. And you can have, like, I have a youthful exuberance about me, so hopefully I still have some potential. But I think I've gotten much more interested in watching other people grow and kind of realize what they're capable of. Nice. Okay. Uh, so that's that's one. And then uh, I think I'm way – I am much more willing now to make a change in personnel. Yeah. And I think that I'm much more willing to make a change in personnel – and I am much more, much more empathetic and sympathetic when I do. I gotcha. Makes great sense. Okay. Yeah. You quit your job tomorrow. You become a lecturer at the Foster School of Business at University of Washington. And your first lecture is called The Role of the Effective CEO. What's your main point or set of points to those students? Well, I am like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Given Cabana did not succeed, effective maybe, maybe those who can do teach right, or uh, uh, or can do, and those who can't teach. That I mean, that's like teachers are amazing. So, but little, <laughs> little joke. Uh, I think like one is like context is everything, right? So you know, if you're the CEO of a seed stage, seed stage startup, that's a really different kind of mindset than being a CEO of like a you know, a publicly traded company. And so, you know, that's, that's just kind of one, or even like a large company, right. It doesn't have to be publicly traded. So I think like any size that you're at, it's like, you got to set the vision and you've got to like create the values. Right. And I had a friend who told me something when I was starting Cabana, it was like, you know, you start a company and, and you want to ask people, well, how do I incorporate? How do I do all the tactical things? And that's really like not the important stuff. Like tactics are like a Google search away, right? But his feedback to me was the thing that you need to recognize when you're the founder is that all of your good traits will be magnified and all of your bad traits will be magnified. Mm. And like it will be the culture of the organization for good and for ill. And so I think that's, uh, that's kind of one thing, like, so being thoughtful about the values that you have. And then I think the other thing is like, like, obviously like building, like everybody, like it's such a cliche that it's like your number one job is to hire great people, but it's like a cliche for a reason, because as, as mentioned, like every mistake, every do over I have would have been like, I can point to like, we didn't have the right people in the room helping us make decisions. Uh, and then I think like, and this is again, it, it context dependent, but like deliver resources. So like you set the vision, you create the values, you build the team 
And then it's kind of like, you got to make sure people have the resources to do what you're asking them to do. And then, you know, kind of, you got to reward the positive, you know, prune the negative. You know, if you're, if you're in a small company, you got to be like willing to roll up your sleeves and like really get in there and kind of like do the work. So you're like CEO part-time and like doer part-time. Whereas like when I was running like the Seattle DOT, it's like, okay, I got to get out in the field and like meet people. And I want to make sure that I have relationships at every level of the organization. And then also externally, right? So I can, so I can like have a very wide field of vision versus like just focusing on kind of my direct reports. And then I think the other thing, and I think this is like, I think again, kind of like maybe I, maybe I should spend some time in Yogaville or maybe I, I have, right? Which is, you know, I think when you're the CEO, and I think you alluded to this, right? It's lonely and you're, you're not normal, right? You're not a normal person if you've chosen to do it. And I, I think like ambition is a mental health issue that our society has chosen to positively reward, <laughs> right? It's not normal. It's not healthy. There are happier people out there, right? It's, yeah. So, and you're going to be leading this group of people and you're going to be making decisions that a lot of people on your team may or may not agree with. And they're not going to see the full field that you see. And they're not going to be facing the same trade-offs that you're facing. And so it can get pretty lonely. And I think this goes back to like, kind of like your split, split screen question, which is like, I think earlier in my career, I, I wanted people like, it was like, I really needed people to understand why I made the decision and like given the same information that they would make the same decision. Right. Like I really, like I needed that, needed them to see me for who I was and see my intent. Right. And then like, I think as I've got gotten older and like a little, I think you can't like, you want that. Like, obviously you want that you strive for it. But, you know, I think what I would always do is like, I, you can't make people like you. Like as much as you might want to, you can't. And a lot of times like being the CEO means that like, you know, people may respect you, they may follow you, but there's a, there's a dynamic that's always going to be there. You know, and I I think this also works in a marriage as well. So uh, like you learn to like focus on what my intent is. Like I, I just like, what is my intent? If if I have good intent in what I'm doing, I can't control how people are going to react to that. Right. All I can do, I can do my best to communicate what we're doing, why we're doing it, my intent in doing it. But ultimately I can't control how people respond to that. And they're coming at it with like a whole bunch of other stuff that's going on in their personal life or past or whatever that's interpreting how they're, or that's influencing how they interpret it. And then the other is, uh, just kind of like learn, like when you make a mistake, right? Like everybody makes them, CEOs make them. Like learning to apologize without requiring forgiveness. Mm, if that makes well sense. Where it's like, very well said. Yeah. And then learning to like forgive yourself, right? Like, cause you're going to get some things wrong and you just got to be able to like miss that one it's a different way of thinking about it is like on that latter point it's like a shooter's mindset right like how do you get out of a slump you just shoot your way out like if you're a basketball player you gotta have a shooter's mindset and i think the same that's that's i think a thing that you need to develop right otherwise like the the misses like grind on you broadly speaking hiring is always cited in these interviews is one of the most challenging parts of leading companies. What have you learned about making hires that you want to pass on to others? Uh, this is, I mean, well, this is, I think getting hired and, and doing the hiring is like the hiring process is it's, it, people spend a lot of time focusing on getting chosen and not asking whether they want the job. Right. Mm. And so, a lot of times you, you, you get the, you know, you might hire somebody that like presents really, really well because they are trying to win the job selection process. And then they get chosen. They're like, well, wait a second. I don't really want this. I just wanted to be chosen. So that's like one kind of like 
kind of meta thing. Like go to Amazon. They have like 150 questions that they ask everybody, right? Or not that they pick from. They have like a phenomenal question bank. So just go to that. It's all tied to their leadership principles. It's like, it's like, it should be like an outsourced HR service that they offer to other people. Uh, well, cause, the other, cause Jeff Bezos needs more money. I, I, just I don't uh, think he's got enough right now. Exactly. You know, so the other thing is like you, the other observation is like, you can teach people skills, but you can't change like their character, their traits. Those are, I mean, yeah. you can like, they can with like, we're focusing on like personal growth, but they're much more immutable. And so like hire for the trait and the character, not the skill. Like, I mean, obviously this is like, if you're hiring a doctor, you want to have a doctor that's got skills. So like, don't lean all the way into that statement. But I think that life isn't a cafeteria, right? And so like, nobody's going to come in with like every trait that you want them. And like, when I say that, it's like, you can't pick like, oh, I want like this appetizer and this entree and this dessert. It's like you buy the whole meal and no substitutions. And so like really knowing what is most critical and being like honest with yourself, like, and like when you're looking at the candidate, recognizing that they're going to be coming in with their own blind spots and like not expecting them to be like this perfect person, like the next hire is the perfect hire. So I probably over index to like persistence and grit and like self-awareness like our cto that like i hired was like he was amazing to work with and he came in and he was like when you guys get to 100 people i'm quitting because i hate working for big companies i love working for small companies i want to do coding i i like leading people but i really i still want to code and i was like you're my guy because you know exactly what you want and you know exactly what you're good at and you are willing to leave when the time, you know, when the when the the time is right. And so, Makes like sense. that, that to me is like very important. What's the guidance you'd offer in firing people? Uh, I've never heard somebody say they fired somebody too soon. Uh, okay. So, <laughs> you know, if you if you want to, if you feel like you have somebody that's not performing, time isn't usually going to make it better. I have very rarely seen somebody that you're you're ready to fire. And they turn it around. That's kind of one thing. I think that there's a tendency to let, to like kind of come up with reasons not to, right? Because it's an incredibly Mm -hmm. hard conversation to have. And there's always like reasons like, well, we have this deliverable due or this project due or this other thing due. And like for the, like not always, but the vast majority of the times, what I have found is that when you wind up letting somebody go, even if they have like this like time sensitive deadline, you wind up speeding up or figuring out how to hit it and you you benefit by having, you know, fresh blood in there. Like I think a lot of people, like I've had a few times where managers have come to me and said, Oh, you know, like, well, I don't have to fire Nancy because like she quit. And I think that's like a failure. I think that is a failure of the manager, right? Because like effectively what you have done is you there's a few things that you've done in that context you have essentially like made somebody's work environment so unpleasant that they've chosen the unknown over you right like 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 that's not like people don't just like quit right like you're forcing them out and so you're being a bad man one that's not great from a human energy like the energy to put into the world standpoint two you're accepting non-performance as a way to avoid a challenging conversation and then three the rest of your team sees it, right? Everybody sees that you're not holding somebody that's a poor performer accountable. And so that's not good. Now, I will say, like, as you mentioned, like people talk about like getting fired, like, like I've been fired. It happens. Like sometimes you can be like a wonderful human and it can't, it may not be the right place for you or the right job for you for whatever reason. And so I think there's like a human side as well, where in a lot of ways it is a, so that like harshness that I just delivered was really for the manager that needs to be making the hard conversation because like fundamentally at some level, it's like you need somebody that's making it harder for you to like keep the poor performing or that person on that needs to go than it is for you to have the hard conversation. So that's like, you got to like, there's a little bit of harshness that needs to come for the manager. Now for the person I think a lot of times a gift, right? 
because the person that's on the receiving end, it's very rarely a surprise, right? Like they usually know that they're not doing super well. Mm-hmm. And it's usually not something that's intrinsic about them as a person or their professional skills or abilities. It's usually just about the situation and the context. And so figuring out how to communicate that in a way that is like humane and respectful and then figuring out how to help them find, like knowing who they are, like and what they're good at and like trying to like make it not about them, but about the situation. And then the other thing is it's also the audience is also the people that are staying, right? The people that aren't getting let go. So, you know, they want to know one that like, if somebody is not like performing that, like that person doesn't like that, that they're not going to be just held on to, right? Just for the, gotcha. you know, so they want to be like high performing people want to be around other high performing people. And so like you want to demonstrate that. The flip side is, is everybody is also looking at like, did you do it in a way that was like humane or cruel, right? Because like they're immediate, like everybody's also going to think about like, well, how, like if this ever happens to me, what it's going to be like. So it's like, don't be afraid to do it. Like I, I'm at a point now where I like, I can tell you, like, there's been a few people where I can tell you, like literally in my first meeting where I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. We hired the wrong person. And it'll take me, you know, I always takes me too long to like get to that point. But it's also like, it's about the person that's going, but it's just as much about the people that are staying. Got it. That's a very long winded answer. I apologize for that. That's all right. Two last questions. What did you learn to do either at work or in your personal life to maintain a high performance as the CEO? I've, we have heard everything from I work on old cars to I go to the opera and everything in between. What did you do? I don't think I did enough of those things. Like candidly, like I was, you know, I was, yeah, I, I basically I have a, a daughter. And so like every moment of time that I don't have at work, it's like trying to like figure out how to like be a parent. And so mm-hmm. I guess that, but like that just meant like, I don't go to the gym as much as I should, if at all. Like, I don't eat as well as I'd like to. Like, none of those things. But I think, so that's one thing. I think where I do do well is I try to, like, be kind of contemplative and meditative. Like, maybe it's like a long hike or whatever. But I try to be, like, have, like, kind of some mantras that I, like, go back to to help me not let the things that are happening kind of get me down. So there's a few things. One is, and this is just a reality. It's like people will frequently say, oh, like you see, oh, you like you must, you must be super stressed out. It's like, I have the least stressful job in the company because I am in complete control of my schedule and the decisions that get made, right? So I have like control and most stress is about control. Mm. And it doesn't mean I get my way every time, it doesn't mean we do everything that I want to do. What it means is I, I get to choose when I exert control or not, right? To a degree. And like, if I need to have a meeting with somebody, I can put a meeting on their schedule, right? Like, so I have a degree of control that nobody else in the organization has. And I have visibility into the most critical things that are happening. And so like control and uncertainty are huge creators of stress, and so in a lot of ways, like the CEO is a less stressful job if you let it be. That's kind of one thought. The other on the mantra side is like, I try to maintain short-term realism and long-term optimism. I love that. That's really good. Yeah. It's like, if you remember that book, Good to Great, this, I kind of cribbed it and modified it. But he writes about uh, this, the Admiral Stockdale, he's like, calls it the Stockdale paradox. And it's basically like you go through and read the, the vignette. It's like a page or two pages. It's all about that. Like just short-term realism, long-term optimism. Cause if you're like, like optimistic and you're like, I, when I was at Lyme, one of our, one of our, our folks was like, when we raise a series C, everything will get better. Like, you know, cause he was feeling like a lot of pressure. And I'm like, look, dude, when people give you more money, expectations go up and pressure increases. 
we will have less pressure and things will be better when we no longer work here because like that would mean we've had an exit. <laughs> so like short-term reality, it's just, it's only going to get harder, but long-term, like it's going to be good. So I think that's right. like a, a very important kind of mindset to have. And then the other thing is like things that are outside of your control, like you can't like you, I mean, you, you need to, you can't ignore them. Right. You need to be aware of them yeah, and like yeah. game out how you respond to them, but you can't control them. So like, what is the worry about stressing about them? It's just like worry about like stress about what your reaction to that will be and like how you're going to respond and recognize that like life is like nonstop curveballs. And so like knowing that's coming and like, there's like, it's like the Rumsfeld, like known knowns, known unknowns and unknown unknowns. And just like trying to minimize the unknown unknowns, but recognize they're always going to be out there and just like not sweating it and being like aware that like you're a resilient person that can adapt. Like, is it, I don't know. It's like, it's not super pithy, but. That makes sense. I, right? I think it allows like a level of like freedom. All right, so uh, I'm going to take you way, way out, up in level. We'll see if that the uh, short-term yeah, realism, long-term optimism applies. Last question. Has your work left you a climate optimist or a climate pessimist, and why? That's a really good question. So I am a short-term realist. So I uh, – both. I'm like – I am not super confident that – in the like public policy arena that we are going to do everything that we need to do, you know, and get like hundreds of governments to all agree on like the right policy parameters, right. To, uh, to like, you know, fix climate change. What makes me an optimist. So that's like my pessimistic, like short-term realism, like, you know, politics are fickle, whatever. I think, the optimism that I see is, you know, when we were trying to raise a round uh, last, you know, last summer, I was talking to one of our investors about, you know, what the market looked like. It was brutal for companies, right? Like, but we started talking about what was coming and he was describing the number of young people now that are going into like, material science and battery science and you know the number of people that are still in school or at the very start of their career that are focused on this topic area like i if you'd asked me like five to ten years ago i would have told you i thought public policy was the the right way out and i actually think that we will wind up like i think i like i have much more faith now in our ability to innovate our way out from your mouth to God's ears, Scott Kubley, uh, that's a good way to end this thing. You have been generous, thoughtful, wise, and I'm grateful. Scott, I wish you just all the luck in the world, and um, thanks for being willing to take your time and share what you learned, because it was a lot. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendes. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.